Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President Dr Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. We all know about the devastating impact that low back pain has on disability worldwide. According to the Global Burden of Disease Study in 2015, it ranks number one for years lost with disability. While people who experience low back pain usually get substantial reduction in their symptoms after about six weeks, about 40% will develop chronic pain that may persist for months or even years. Even those who recover quickly will often experience recurrent episodes. And of course, chiropractors are very, very aware of these things. Now, historically, analgesic medication such as paracetamol has been recommended in clinical guidelines as a first choice pain medicine for people with non-specific low back pain, especially in the acute phase. But does the evidence support this recommendation? Well, here to talk about uh, this today is Professor Chris Maher. Now, Chris is founding director of the Institute of Musculoskeletal Health. Over his career, Chris has worked in clinical practice as a physiotherapist. He's worked as a university academic and for the past 15 years has been full-time researcher supported by NHMRC fellowships. Chris's research is focused on improving healthcare and healthcare outcomes for people with low back pain. He has a remarkable over 750 research papers more than 55 million in competitive research funding and has 40 or over 40 rather PhD completions. Chris has received a number of awards for his research and in 2019 was awarded the Giles Medal for Excellence in Healthcare Research from the ACA. Hi Chris and uh, welcome to the ACA podcast. Uh, thank you for the introduction and uh, thank you for hosting me today Anthony. So um, let's talk about a lot the low back pain guidelines first of all there's many different forms uh, in different countries they've been around for a number of years how is it that paracetamol first came to be recommended um, in the first place i think it was really convention people when you talk to them just presumed that paracetamol was effective as a pain reliever there was a belief that it worked across the board for all different pain conditions and so Yes, people just put it in because they presumed it worked. And if you look across at different authorities, the, the World Health Organization puts it on its essential medicines list. So, you know, there's there's a lot of background to why people presume that paracetamol worked. And it's only up until, I guess, recent times that people have stopped and had a good look and thought, well, do we actually have the evidence that paracetamol is effective as a pain reliever? So when did that view start to change? Was there a, a seminal paper or was it more a general sort of interest into looking more deeply into what things are recommended and what evidence there is supporting different recommendations for guidelines. Yeah, and no, I think it sort of snuck up on us really because I had an opportunity to do, this is an interesting story, I guess, you know, one of my honours students wanted to do a systematic review and he came up with the idea of looking at whether paracetamol works and I thought that was a crazy topic but he hmm. convinced me that we should do it and so we, we did the systematic review and I guess the most surprising result of that review which was done published in 2008, I think, was that really there was very little evidence. You know, there was a few small studies that were very poorly conducted. Most of the studies didn't even actually show you the dose of paracetamol. 
paracetamol that was given. I mean, it's just bizarre. And we found no, and I guess, you know, Chris's results and his research idea, we thought, well, yeah, we need to look at this issue because we've presumed for a long time that there was strong evidence. And the first time we go and have a look, we found nothing. So that followed up uh, with, uh, I think it was your 2016 uh, systematic review as well. Um, so that, that what, what were you looking for with these studies? Uh, I'm assuming pain and disability. Were, were there other things that you looked at as far as this in particular, how it applied maybe to low back pain? Yeah, I, I, if I take you back a couple of years before that, we did a large randomised control trial. So it was the PACE trial. So we randomised people to receive two ways of um, administering paracetamol. One was time contingent and the other was as required. And then the third group got placebo. So there were 1,650 people, 550 in each group. And we followed them over time to see what the results were. And no matter which way we looked at the outcomes, there was no benefit of paracetamol over placebo, no matter which way you took it. So we measured pain outcomes, disability outcomes. We measured quality of life. We measured sleep. We measured how long it took people to get better. Every single outcome we looked at, there was absolutely no difference. And I, and for me, the interesting thing was we conceived that study. I was, let's test which way is the best way to use paracetamol, you know, time contingent or as required. And at the very last moment, we thought, let's put in a placebo arm because we're not really sure of this. And if we hadn't have put in that third arm, we would have concluded, doesn't matter which way you take paracetamol, it works. Yes. Because we put in the placebo arm, we could say, for the first time, this medicine, no matter which way you take it, is no better than, I guess, a sugar pill or a placebo. And at the time, that was a really hotly contested result. You know, people thought that we got the results wrong. There's all sorts of, you know, people were just really shocked about this. And it really is, uh, I guess, that type of uh, research um, where it's just take pill A or pill B. Uh, I mean, you can really control the controllables uh, there, can't you? You know, it's double-blinded. It's not like testing, you know, one form of manual therapy and then a placebo manual therapy. It, the, the results, you would imagine, would be fairly clear-cut. Yeah, so that's, that's one of the benefits of doing a drug trial because you can get really good blinding, you know, really good control of the dosing and what you're actually doing. Whereas, as you point out, you know, different forms of physical and psychological therapies, they're, they're often surgical therapies. They're very complex. They're hard to describe, hard to standardise. And so there, there are some benefits of doing a randomised control trial of a medicine. And you can get a very clear answer if the, if the study's, you know, conducted well. Um, that, that is a bit harder to do for things like spinal manipulation, you know. We, we, we accept that that's a bit tougher to control than giving people placebo pill, the real pill of paracetamol. Yes. So this was just looking at, I guess, uh, paracetamol as a monotherapy. So it's just take this or don't. And they're not looking at combining it with exercise or combining it with uh, manual therapy care, spinal adjustments, anything like that? Uh, well, that trial gave everybody we called first-line care. So they were seen by the GP, they were examined and they were told about the good natural history. So they're given advice about um, the good prognosis. They're encouraged to resume normal activity. So it's sort of the, the fundamental of care. And then in the pain-relieving strategy, we looked at those three different approaches, two being real formulations of paracetamol and one being the placebo. Um, so, yeah, I guess it was meant to 
mimic the way the GP might manage a patient. So with a, G, a general practitioner, that, that whole package of being given some advice about the nature of the disease, what the person should do for self-care and what analgesic they would, would take would represent a typical package for um, a GP managing someone with acute low back pain. So imagine when you have research that um, so blatantly goes against what has been conventional care in a medical setting for so many years, you must um, get a fair bit of resistance out there from pharmaceutical companies, from GPs and other providers. Um, what were some of the uh, interesting experiences you had following uh, the publication of the research? Well, I think one of the interesting experiences was talking to the drug company that co-funded the trial. So the trial that I talked about was an investigator-initiated trial primarily funded by the National Health and Medical Research Council, but we got some supplementary funding and also the drug supplies from one of the drug manufacturers of paracetamol. And so my job was to go to them and explain to them that their, their medicine that they were marketing was no better than a placebo. And so that was not well received day one. But over time, they accepted that the study was robust and they couldn't find a flaw in it. Um, yeah. What's happened since is really, I've not noticed any difference in the marketing of paracetamol by the various companies. It seems like the approach was, let's just ignore that and hope it goes away. If you go and visit different websites and stuff, there's still um, Panadol paracetamol products marketed for low back pain. Um, they don't seem to have decided that this medicine is not appropriate and moved on to a different area. Mm. In terms of beyond pharmaceutical companies, we did get some pushback from researchers. You know, a lot of researchers didn't believe the result. Um, I had a colleague in the Netherlands who didn't believe it at all. And we sort of came to a position where I said, look, I'll give you the data and you can reanalyze it. And he did. So he had a PhD student who reanalyzed the data from all different perspectives. And what we found was that he found exactly the same result that we did. So we're yeah. pretty confident. He also did some other analyses looking at different sorts of outcomes and got exactly the same result. And he did an interesting analysis, which was looking at the effect of compliance with the dose. Because some people said maybe people didn't take the full dose. And if they took yeah. the full dose, it would definitely work. And what we found was that a bit counterintuitively, the effect was slightly smaller in people who took the full dose of paracetamol. Right. So we've had a lot of people grab the data set and reanalyze it, and the the study results are robust. You know, nobody's been able to come up with a different result, which is great for me because, you know, at the back of your mind, sometimes you think, well, maybe I did get it wrong. So each time mm. someone got the data set, checked it, and, and got the same answer, you know, it convinced me that we had the right result. And then in terms of guidelines, um, at the moment, probably 50% of guidelines have changed. There's a bit That's of resist good. resistance professionally. And I think it's because people just want to hang on to something as an alternative to an opioid. And so that's a really complex issue. The, the argument people give me is, yes, um, I understand the evidence about paracetamol, but if I don't use that medicine, what can I offer people instead of an opioid, which is potentially uh, a deadly medicine? And so yes. that's complex to wrestle with. Yeah, that's the, the devil, you know, kind of argument, I guess, you know, here's something simple. If low back pain is, uh, you know, likely to ease at least somewhat over uh, a, a month or so, maybe taking this for a short term is, is better than the potential for addiction to something much, much stronger. Yeah, the only, the only downside with that argument is, is that it ignores the reality that some people come to harm with paracetamol. So if you take paracetamol 
strictly according to the recommendations of your doctor, you won't usually come to harm, but it's easy to inadvertently take too much. And so there's a large number of people around the world who inadvertently take too much paracetamol and have a poisoning episode and get admitted to hospital. And, and unfortunately, some of those people actually pass away. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that is that paracetamol is in a lot of over-the-counter products. And so you might be taking paracetamol um, as a painkiller and you forget that there's also paracetamol in the cough medicine you're taking. So it's, it's in a number of different medicines that you might grab. And so people can inadvertently take too much. And sometimes people don't get pain relief. As I've told you, it doesn't seem to work very well. And if you, if you increase the dose, you're not going to get more pain relief, but you might get yourself poisoned. Yes. So I have some reservations about the line of thinking, let's give people paracetamol as a placebo because yep. it's not inert. And yep. if, you, if you do that, there is a potential you'll harm people. And I guess it's also um, delaying what might be better ways to approach these sorts of problems, uh, you know, with you know, exercise, with manual therapies and so on. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way of looking at it. There's, there's an opportunity cost of someone taking something that's ineffective because they are denied the opportunity of an effective treatment. So I think that's exactly the way we should deal with the issue. You know, there's a whole range of things that are possible for people with back pain and we're better off to offer the patient or consumer the portfolio of things that are known to work and select from those rather than delving down to things which are ineffective or harmful. And I think that's the strongest argument about against relying upon paracetamol. There's other things that they could do some things that are as cheap and simple as a heat wrap. You know, people can buy those from the pharmacist. They have, don't have many downsides. They're pretty cheap. Um, I think that's the sort of thinking that I would encourage among clinicians. And as you say, forms of exercise and forms of manual therapy also have something to offer for people with low back pain. So obviously the conversation so far has been about paracetamol specifically for low back pain, but we were speaking just off air before about how paracetamol is now the number one um, pain reliever across the counter. Um, there's a whole lot of it sold and we've got the situation with Tylenol also coming into Australia now. So there's obviously a, a massive, massive market for it. Um, more recently, uh, you've published an article that looks at uh, paracetamol more broadly for other presentations. Uh, are there some things that paracetamol works well for? No. So that's... A <laughs> In that systematic review, we looked at the evidence as paracetamol as a pain reliever. So paracetamol's got two indications, to relieve fever and to relieve pain. So we yes. looked at its ability to relieve pain. For the 44 pain conditions, we found four where it worked a little bit, and we right. found one where it was ineffective. And for the other 39, there was insufficient evidence to make a call. Right. And so what you've got is, I guess, five conditions where either paracetamol works a tiny bit or it doesn't work at all. Yes. And so there isn't evidence that it's a good pain reliever. You know, the the size of the effect for osteoarthritis is tiny. It's it's a few units on a zero to 100 point scale, which you can measure in a very large systematic review or clinical trial, but your patients don't discern that. Like if you yes. say to your patient, yeah. what's your pain today on a scale from zero to 10? No one does it to one decimal place. You know, no one no, comes in and no. says, Doc, you know, you know, yesterday my pain was five, but today it's a 4.9. I'm much better. You know, like <laughs> yes. people, people don't conceptualize pain in increments of three points on a hundred. No. Usually when, 
when I remember pain um, descriptions from patients, it's it's one or two units that it's incremented. You know, someone comes in, yes, it's much better. It used to be a six and now it's a four or something like yeah. that, but, yeah. but never one or two points on a hundred point scale. That's just silly. And so I think the message from that systematic review is that paracetamol doesn't deserve its reputation as a as a trusted pain reliever because for most conditions we don't know if it works. For the five conditions where we do have evidence, one it's ineffective, and for the other four it's marginal. It, it, yes. it has a trivially small effect, not what enough a, to justify the amount that's sold as a pain reliever in this country and overseas. Definitely, there's obviously, and I had a patient inflammatory arthritis of her foot, um, and she said she started just recently on Panadol Osteo and found that to be very helpful for her. Is there is there a bell curve in there? Is there a, a subgroup that will respond better to um, Panadol Osteo than others? Um, and is that because the way it's it's mechanism, it works more effective with some than others? Or is that again, just potluck and maybe a bit of chance? Yeah, I think it's potluck at the moment. There's no evidence that there's some differential effect Know that there's some subgroups of people who do well with paracetamol and some subgroups who don't do well. And if you think about it, with if you look at the maths, you know, the effect in back pain was zero. And so for someone to do really well, there has to be someone who's doing who's being harmed by paracetamol. Yes. And there has to be equal numbers of people harmed and helped to sort of add up to zero in the middle. Yes. And so the possibility that there's a subgroup who do really well is unlikely because mm. you have to have a subgroup who is harmed by taking paracetamol. And, and that's not common. I mean, that case that you talked about, you know, it's very hard for that person to distinguish her experience from natural history, all these yeah. other things that are going on that might well have, have been responsible for that. So I think uh, hoping that there's a subgroup that paracetamol works, I think, don't see that's really going to be the, the saviour of paracetamol as a pain reliever. I think really, you know, it's my, my best guess, you know, if we com- continued all the studies and got the answer is we'd find much the same as we've got now, small effect or no effect. So I think most it's, you know, music to most chiropractors ears to, uh, to have more natural approaches, I guess, to, 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 mechanical solutions, I guess, to mechanical problems rather than chemical solutions necessarily to chemical problems. You mentioned, and this was again a comment I think you made off air about how the changes in the um, availability of codeine may have pushed up paracetamol um, uh, significantly in terms of people who used to go to codeine. Now it's harder to get, so paracetamol is the other option. Is is there other... um, medical interventions um, in terms of medicines that you think work well for uh, low back pain? For example, I'm thinking of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Yeah, I think the the picture at the moment in 2021 is that of the different pain medicines we've got, really the only one that seems to work for for back pain is other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicines. So they certainly do seem to work. So paracetamol doesn't seem to work. Opioids work, but only a small amount. And people question whether the benefit is worth the harm. Mm. We've done a trial looking at Lyrica for sciatica, and, and so that's a pregabalin, and that doesn't seem to work. So most of the guidelines now are saying if you have someone who's got spinal pain, the starting point should be non-pharmacological therapy, which yep. is a big change from when I started because they would always start in the guidelines talking about the medicines you would give someone. 
And then yes. towards the end of the guideline, they talk about physiotherapy and chiropractic. Mm. And of course, the and I guess this is a, uh, how long does, does the research take to translate to practice? I mean, of course, physios and chiros are doing this sort of stuff now and have been for a long, long time. Um, do you think the uh, GPs and the medical profession more broadly will take a little bit longer to, to shift across or are you already seeing that changing? No, I, I'm not seeing it change. I think it's going to take a while to change because the, the challenge for the GP is that a lot of the things they would normally do has been taken away. And so they're now going to have to work more. They'll either have to change their approach and do some of these things themselves or work more closely with chiropractors, physios and psychologists working in a team. Yeah. Some GPs are doing that um, because if you think about it, there's not a lot of the recommended treatments that GPs are equipped to provide in a typical GP practice. You know, think about you go into your GP, they can't do an exercise program in that clinic. There's just not enough room. Yeah. The rooms are not set up to provide manual therapy treatments. So the things that are endorsed in the guidelines are very difficult for the GPs to provide in the environment they work in. And that's not considering whether they're trained to provide them in the first place. Yeah. So to me, I think GPs have a role in screening people, triaging them, administering first-line care, and for people who need more care, it's referring on to the community physio, chiropractor, psychologist, exercise and sports scientist. I'm, I'm pretty agnostic about the religion of the provider. I mean, all those providers have some role to play in back pain care. And I think the GPs will have to move into um, a newer era where they're making greater use of those different professions who provide the physical and psychological therapies that, that are now endorsed in guidelines as what should be provided before pharmacological care. Now, just moving on, the, the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare is putting together um, a clinical care standard for low back pain, and I know you're involved with that, and now that's um, still, I think, in draft format, but is a public document now. How's that going? And um, I'm assuming that uh, paracetamol probably won't make the list um, on that particular um, care standard. Yeah, well, it's interesting because the list, the, the guidelines got a list of what to avoid, but it doesn't have a really a list of what to, to give in terms of medicines. And so there's not, a, there's not an explicit do not use paracetamol. Right. But there is an explicit avoid opioids, anticonvulsants, benzos, antidepressants. So they've, they've looked at, I guess, the riskier pain medicines and, yes. and said very clearly, I think this is a very brave move actually to say, avoid these pain medicines but it was a step too far for them to say and paracetamol right um, so I, I lost that a discussion at the commission um but always on the, these things consensus and to me having got the result that they have had an explicit message about avoiding opioids antidepressants anticonvulsants you know i think that was a good win mm. <laughs> Um, and, and paracetamol was allowed to be silent on. And so it depends upon how, how strict you want to be. I, I think, you know, in a perfect world, it would have been on the list of please avoid. It's not. Mm. But I can live with that. Well, I think uh, as long as the information is getting out there and people are starting to listen, sometimes the, the wheels uh, uh, take a long way uh, or are very slow to turn, aren't they? Um, so any sort of parting thoughts? Um, I, I, I think we've probably covered everything 
that I sort of uh, was thinking related to this, but any parting thoughts for practitioners and maybe in particular how to um, have these conversations with their patients? Yeah, I, I, I think um, I'd encourage chiropractors to, you know, embrace the guidelines that are out there and think about practising in a fashion where they would do a range of therapies for their patients. And so I guess moving on from a fairly um, a previous approach and so thinking about providing as well as manual therapies, exercise therapies, talking therapies, um, providing heat wraps for their patients, you know, getting some understanding of cognitive behavioural therapy and trying to practice in a way which I guess is more holistic and moves from the traditional approach to something which is, I guess, a bit more expanded because I think that's the natural place for modern chiropractic. You know, in terms of back care, if you could provide the one-stop shop that provides the range of physical services, I think that would be quite attractive to consumers. And so that would be one message. I need to be careful in saying that because I don't want to preach to people, but um, I'm in the lucky position, even though I'm a physiotherapist, I've had a lot of PhD students who are chiropractors. And so I've benefited enormously. So I guess the last thing I'd offer would be, if you're thinking about research and you're interested in it, you know, I would encourage people to put their hand up. You know, there's a lot of good places uh, in Sydney and in Australia where you can do a research degree. And I've been blessed with, the, I think it's now five or six chiropractic research students publishing their work in fantastic journals like um, British Medical Journal, New England uh, Journal of Medicine. So chiropractors have a role to contribute to the research underpinning spine care. And if people are thinking about something like that, I'd encourage them to make a few phone calls. You know, call Simon French at Macquarie University, give me a call at Sydney University. You know, there's, a, there's a range of places that are available that are, are really happy to take on chiropractors as part of their research team. Um, so that's a bit of an advertorial and I have to apologise for that. But I did actually mention Simon French at Macquarie. So it's sort of a half advertorial. Really. <laughs> no, look, I think that's a really, uh, a really good um, information to get out there. So um, uh, I appreciate that very much. Um, Chris, thank you so much for your time. I know you're extremely busy. Um, I've had a look at just what's been published with your name on it just this year. And it's uh, already quite a long list. So um I think you mentioned that you've got uh, lots of good students uh, working under under your uh, sage guidance. So um, thank you very much. We, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you for the opportunity, Anthony. It's been great talking with you and hopefully with the, uh, I guess, the audience in the background who we can't see. Absolutely. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. Mm -hmm.